everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Mangum Reads. I'm Spencer, and joining me are delightfully BJ and Sarah. How are y'all doing? So far, so good. How are you doing, Sarah? I am doing well. Spencer, how are you? You know, I'm doing great and glad to just have the both of you here on an episode after, um, for several in a row now. Sarah, we desperately missed you when we did uh, Stephen King. I was um, there in spirit, by which I mean in the background, <laughs> listening to one side of the conversation and shaking my head furiously. <laughs> We are continuing through the uh, forward collection. On now to our third story, You Have Arrived at Your Destination by Amor Tulsa, uh, who is the classic example of an author that I feel like I've heard of, I own a book of his, but I've not read it, just falling into that Christmas purchase category. Uh, I, Sarah, from what you said, you, you, you're, you're similar there? Yes, in fact, um, I own a copy of it. My mother gave me a copy for Christmas. Um, I gave my uncle a copy for Christmas, and my uncle gave my mom a copy for Christmas. So, <laughs> and do you know if um, any of them have read it? Not to my knowledge. So, you told us off pod that you actually read through half of it, and I'm sort of wondering, in your normal fashion, do you remember any of the characters' plot or uh, the world that it's in, or just like is it just like a remaining? the tone of the book and the, like, the, the prose. Well, BJ, I believe there was a gentleman. <laughs> it might have been I think in he Moscow. was in Moscow. <laughs> I would love if that's not actually true and you're just bluffing right now. <laughs> it was I actually in Moscow. Female, totally spit in Milwaukee. <laughs> nope, I no idea. <laughs> but it seemed nice. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, before we get into the meat of this story, Sarah, uh, from our pre-recording, we know that you prepared a cocktail live for us to listen to what is it and how is it it so um i am on the second of my six cocktails that uh have come from a machine learning ai uh who created these that who created these cocktails um after having uh read through and i am furiously trying to um after having read through or incorporated or whatever taken as input um, all of the recipes from Death & Co's Modern Cocktail Classics, which has more than 500 recipes, and then it, it kind of generated these six cocktails. And so I'm doing my second tonight, and again, fair warning, the creator of this algorithm has suggested that the algorithm is not great at producing names for the cocktails, and this is two in a row that that seems correct for, yes. Um, but it is called a Park Markinen. Um and so I will, I will tell you... What's that second word? Markinen. M-A-R-K-E-N-I-N. Googling? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's a thing or not. I don't know where it came from. Um, I was promised in the notes that the algorithm creator gave for each of these drinks, I was promised that this was going to be reminiscent of Coke in color and taste, and it is uh, neither of those things. I mean, However, it's it is... vaguely reminiscent of Coke in color if you've left, like the ice cubes in it to melt way too long exactly yes yes that's true it is like really it's a kind of the color of a a good southern sweet tea but um and it does not taste like coke but it is it is actually delicious and so what is involved in it it has equal parts of bourbon i'm using four roses bourbon um, an amaro which i had never had before i had to buy for this cocktail it's a liqueur it's one of those liqueurs that is kind of like the the specialized blend of however many herbs and spices. Um, but we were also talking about 
and this is interesting because I have the Amaro Montenegro, um, and my bottle tells me that this was first made in Bologna in 1885. Oh, I didn't see this before. By the young rebel genius Stanislaw Kobianchi in homage to Princess Elena of Montenegro, who was at that time the future queen, queen of Italy. So, like a load of Bologna. <laughs> I mean, hmm. <laughs> So equal parts of the bourbon and the Amaro, and then, um, and they have, you know, three quarters of an ounce of each of those, half an ounce of a red vermouth, um, a quarter of an ounce of lemon juice, a half an ounce of cinnamon syrup, and then a garnish. Now I will say, excuse me, that I am not using a cinnamon syrup because I did not, as I thought I did have cinnamon sticks to make the cinnamon syrup, but I did have mulling spices which had cinnamon in them. So I am using a mulling spice mix and it has added a little a little Christmas flavor to the drink, which has been great. And I uh, garnished it with a bourbon cherry. I think you should call it Christmas bologna. Christmas bologna. Sold. Much better name. <laughs> Done. Done. Mark it down. I will comment on this Medium article. <laughs> the computers do not get to tell us what to do. Um... But yeah, this is great. And I will say, you know, I was not super impressed with the drink that I had last week, although I think that that was proportions more than ingredients. And I will continue to kind of fiddle with that a little bit because I do like a gin drink. But this is, this one is really in, I would say this is in the top five drinks of the year for me. Wow. Wow. High price. Mm -hmm. It's really very good. I was particularly curious in this episode what drink you were going to go with. I'd forgotten you, did, you were doing machine learning just because of how drink-focused this story ended up being. There, there are options, but one, I believe, needs to be sitting in a dive bar for these options to make sense. <laughs> yeah, well, you're, you're all, they also weren't great options. They were a gin and tonic or a martini served in the wrong way. Yes, <clears throat> both of which sort of cut right at my heartstrings. So <laughs> I will yeah. not be doing that. Thank you. Well, in terms of reader experience, uh, were readers cut to their heartstrings true in terms of the comments on this story? Because I did some pre-reading and it seemed that way for some. Yes. I, this is so... I have been, I think, more frustrated with the reviews for the three stories that we have read thus far, even though we didn't like the story from last week. Internet, people on the internet reviewing short stories is maybe one of the most frustrating things in the world for me. <laughs> Which is why we make you do it. It is really quite irritating. So, um, you know, this overall, this story has a, a solid 3.8 out of 5 stars, although I should have looked to do kind of a comparison with the stories we've read before. This might be the lowest rated story that we've read thus far, That's according to the internet. I'll look at the other two right now. Yeah, if you could, Spencer, that would be great. As we've um, said before, the internet's wrong about certain things. That is a, a bold stance to take, PJ. <laughs> <laughs> I like making bold proclamations. <laughs> Kudos to you. So, you know, I think a lot of people really did love this story, but I kind of, I went straight, I don't know which reviews you read, uh, Spencer, but I went straight to the two-star reviews. And those were overwhelmingly people who had read A Gentleman in Moscow mm -hmm. and loved it and couldn't understand this story, which I thought was was really interesting because what I what I. I think remember about a gentleman in Moscow is it, it's not a particularly easy story. Um, was it in Russian? <laughs> they just like the look of it on the page. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so I mean, that's the kind of main thrust of it. I will say a couple of other um, 
trends I was seeing in these reviews is that they, once again, and this is what infuriates me about internet reviews of short stories, is that they didn't understand the ending and like feel like there wa wasn't an ending, um, which is interesting. I, I know we'll get there. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other, the other trend that I was seeing, which I thought was actually really interesting, is that there were a number of different two-star reviews that were talking about like how unlikable the narrator was and how that turned them off the story. I would say at the outset that the unlikable narrator is, in my opinion, a like real, that is the point of the story. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the narrator did a good job of the audible story. No, 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 no. The, the narrator of the story oh, itself. Not the, the, not the, the reader. Protagonist. The, gotcha. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I thought David um, Arbor did it. Was, it was a good narrator, regardless of... Very, yeah, very good narrator. But our, our point of view, mm -hmm. um, and it is a first-person point of view, uh, that, kid, that that character they found particularly unlikable, which I agree, but that's a good thing, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Um, so anyway, those are... What did you find out, Spencer, about the other ratings of the other two stories? Uh, there's remarkable little variance between them. Uh, the arc is rated a 4.1 and mm -hmm. randomize is rated a, a four. Okay. So it appears like there's been relatively mild differences between these. Interesting. Uh, despite some rather stark differences in opinion on our part. Very uh, stark differences. The, uh, Sarah, I'd add another category of what I would call the three-star review that I saw oh, when I was looking through these two, of where mm. it was people that had a what proved to be an inaccurate impression going in. Okay. There were a few people that said, I went into this expecting Black Mirror, and that's not what it was. Dark Mirror, but that wasn't what it was. Uh, hmm. The story is, trying, trying to pull, pull these up again, but basically the idea that I expected a sci-fi story and it really wasn't that. Yeah. No, it's not. This is just like a real human drama. I mean... Which is also what we said about Ark. It is sci-fi. It, it is a sci-fi setting definitely to start, and it starts the drama. And it starts part of what is the character conflict. But we were also talking well, a little I, bit off-pod that this is a story as... Certainly the last story we read um, is a story that happens in sort of separate acts. And the first act of this story is sci-fi, but this second, and towards the close of the book, is is not. Se second well, I mean, I guess they talk about it a little bit at the end of, but anyway, I think the focus really shifts. Yeah. Well, I'm curious then, uh, Sarah, if you would, can you, can you summarize what your opinion of the story is? And, you know, <laughs> if you can, in like 10, 15 words. What did you think? I actually really liked this story. Um, I didn't like it as much as Ark, but this would be in, in I think, um, the top three of, this, of these six stories for me. Probably the third. I mean, definitely the third, but it would be in the top three for me. Um, and I have reasons for that, but we can get to those. BJ. Um, I think for me, this suffered on the third reading. Um, mostly because it was the third, um, mm -hmm. and then I think the, like some of the other issues that I had with it were just like, had nothing to do with it, the literary portion of it. There were sort of outside frustrations to like what happens with genetics and sort of how that works and, and stuff like that. Um, but, but the story itself was a really, was a fun listen the first time around. I think honestly, to me, like the entire collection was a really good, um, while I'm doing other things or road trip stories. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then sort of on like in-depth and needling analysis, some of them fall apart more than others. And this fell apart a little bit, but as a piece of work, I liked it, but I do sympathize with the frustrations of unlikable characters. Okay. Spencer. Uh, for me, I, I, I did, I was not put off that the main character is a bit, wouldn't even necessarily call him unlikable necessarily. He's got rough edges and he has some inherent insecurities that drive a lot of his character. Um, but that doesn't necessarily put me off. I, I, I'm interesting, interesting but you said the third time around kind of sullied your view a little bit. For me, I did not actually really enjoy the story the first time through because I fell into that category where they mentioned to people that were put off by how different the two acts, if you want to call it a mm, two-act structure, mm-hmm. were. Where the first act seems to be going in a direction of very much a technology-focused kind of plot or drama or even conspiracy kind of thing that's going on there. And the second act is much more of an individual going through the process of a midlife crisis. Very much like almost an American beat story right there. Can you, sorry to interrupt you, Spencer, but stopping right there for a second, which of those stories or acts did you like better? And here's the thing. On second viewing, I liked them each in their own way because I knew that that was coming. Mm. First time around, I liked the first part because that's the story that I was expecting. And by the time I got to the second part, I found it meandering and confused and kept on waiting for it to return to what I assumed the plot would be. It's Mm -hmm. a little drunk, Spencer. Like... It is meandering and confused. <laughs> yeah, and it is. And once I understood that that was in many ways the point by the end, and in some ways it was almost mocking the idea of a clear act structure that had been previously referencing, uh, I appreciated it more on second viewing. I still, I'm, I'm actually going to agree with some of the reviewers. I find the last paragraph of the story both conf- either confusing or off-putting. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure which. I'm curious to unpack it with you guys. Um, the, over, the overall story, now that I understand better what the author is trying to do, I'm with it. I liked it better than Randomize, which says jack shit. Uh, I did not like it as much as Ark, and I only have three data points, so it's hard to really put where where it falls necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I came to appreciate it on further viewing. And so, BJ, between the two acts, since there is very clearly a two-act structure going on here, which act did you like or dislike better? So I, I think the acts fall into sort of our two... Um, places that that short stories end up which is there are things that I really liked about the second act but I wanted it to fill out a little bit more Mm -hmm. whereas I feel like the first act was full enough and started to bother me in some ways so it's kind of like a I I like the second act more but I wanted more out of it Mm -hmm. it was one of those things too where once I realized the first act was just setting effectively I started to appreciate that I could see the threads of the second act starting to already show, where there were there were hints in the tendrils of what the second act was going to be pretty early on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't looking for those upon first reading, so I was very much focused on okay, this is an interesting enough technological technological focused plot. It will click quickly get old. I'm curious how how we're going to go with it, and that the author kind of drops it like a hot potato and moves on to what he actually wants to talk about. <laughs> Yeah. And drops it like a neon olive and a glowing martini. No, yes. you only see the neon olive every now and then. <laughs> Blinking in and out of existence, it is Schrodinger's olive. Well, uh, sometimes you have snacked on it and have to get a refill. <laughs> um, I will say that I, I think that I would have, I wanted the characters in the second act to be a little bit meatier. And that's mm. where... No, they're, they're cut out, so practically. Mm-hmm. Our, our only character is the main character. And I feel like even the main character yeah. was a little 
lackluster in in sort of the background and the reactions that we got. Um, but again, you know, we can sort of chalk that up to the author deciding to have him be drunk. But I don't know. It's kind of like the um, you know web comics that they have a power outage in, so they can have dark panels. And it's like, well, that's a little bit lazy. <laughs> yeah, and I was I was I was too expecting there to be this to be a bit more character focused, given the characters is two. But it really is just the main character, the protagonist's story. At times, he's almost intentionally wearing different hats, as it were, mm-hmm. even sometimes resembling the various life options he's already viewed for what would have been would have been his potential son. Um, mm-hmm. But it's still always him, and him dealing with the increased doubts and uncertainties that have been inserted into his life. Yeah. Everybody so... else is just kind of offering him a, a, a means to reflect on that. And, and... I, I actually also really at least for me, one of the most interesting things about him is this main character is that he is constantly defying what my expectations for him were Mm -hmm. to the extent that like, I think the fact that he's a flat character is actually just because he's kind of (laughs) dumb and you expect like, but you expected him to be this kind of deep, I mean, not deep necessarily, but like a, um, a kind of with it erudite ready to go character because he's a journalist, like he's upper middle class and Journalist? Like he's just not. He's just isn't he a journalist? Isn't he a tech writer or a finance writer or something? I thought he did like uh, he worked with like power plants doing like inspections of some like financial inspections. Oh, I thought he also wrote about them. I might be wrong about that. Maybe I could he could very well have, but I just remember him talking about like visiting a bunch of different power plants, and you know this could have been in, like another. Uh, yeah, I thought he was writing or, about it, yeah. but I, I might be no, no, no misremembering that. I think they're almost willfully unclear about what his job necessarily is. There are references to various things, like him being an analyst and other analysts going in more in the private equity sector. There's also mm-hmm. a lot of references to him going out to power plants and talking to people there. So it, it seems like it's some kind of generic consultant analyst kind of job, which probably... Okay. It's the wonderful cross, the wonderful cross profession, which involves little bits of everything. Yeah. But what it notably is is not risky. Right. That's, no. That is the key underpinning of his job, and I agree that it informs a bit of the blandness associated with him, is because it's such a conscious choice on his part. So before that, we analyze things that that we haven't talked <laughs> would about, would you like yet, us to go through the plot? I PJ? would like us to go through the plot, but Sarah, which act was your preferred act? 1000% the second act. I do agree that it does start to kind of fall into that trap of um, I wanted it to be better than it was, mm-hmm. but it was far more interesting than the first act. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of to your point, BJ, this was absolutely a story I listened to while I was doing other things. And I I started listening to the first part of this and paid no attention to it. Um <laughs> And, and it was a real struggle for me to, to try to pay attention to it. But by the time we got to, or at, at the point where he is, is leaving the fertility clinic, um, then I was kind of hooked because he was clearly kind of going off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm totally into that story. And, and I have a lot of things to say regarding the second act of this story that I find really interesting, especially in relation to the other stories that we have read and will read. Um, and part of the reason that I rate this story more highly than I do others is some of the um, topics and consideration that are considerations that are coming up in the second act that don't come up in any of our other stories. Interesting. I'm curious as well. Uh, did you guys both listen to and read this, or just one or the other? I did both. I just listened to it. 
Okay. Uh, BJ, and I'm curious, which 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 way of experiencing it did you prefer? Because for me, at least, I much preferred ultimately listening to this than I did reading it. Um, I definitely preferred listening to it. There are definitely books that I prefer reading to listening. And I think it's often where um, I prefer my own voice in, mm-hmm. like, not like my personal voice, but like the voice that I give to characters and and like painting of the world where... Um, it, I think it sort of depends on how good the readers are and how much Audible or whoever producing it cares about the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I th- believe this was sort of produced like specifically for Audible to do uh, readings and, and who they got was, you know, carefully curated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it, it, I think it would also rely on how like voicey a story is yeah and whether whoever they've gotten to read it actually matches up with that voice we are i i think next time going to read a story that has um a narrator that i cannot stand (laughs) well in terms of a mid-40s guy trying to suddenly realize what he's doing with his life david harper kind of fits that well doesn't well uh and I, BJ, I agree. The more a story is basically a single character narrative uh, and focused very much on their own experiences and their own interactions, the more I think it works better for a audible story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this very much falls in that vein. I mean, and the reader often just makes such a big difference because, I mean, they're single, uh, like, viewpoint ones that are well done, and, like, there are even other ones that are not. And I think this reader does capture, like, the other character voices well. Um, so, okay. but plot, plot, finally. All right. So we, we luckily start... not much happens here, so it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our, our main character is Sam. Do we, these Sam, the is... Sam and the Tesla, because Sam the Tesla is important. Is his last name Contours or does the bartender just start calling him that at the end of the story? I, I think he calls him <laughs> that because, uh, he was describing the shaping the contours of his son's life. Gotcha. Okay. Mm, I figured it was some, mm-hmm. some way sarcastic. Um, so we have Sam, who is in his Tesla that he bought for himself, because his wife are in that wife and he are in that relationship where they don't get each other Christmas gifts; they just get them for themselves once they say they don't want anything. Um, and he is spending the initial part of the story driving along a road that he hasn't been on in a long time, going to a futuristic version of a fertility clinic. And which, in which, in this fertility clinic, he is sort of welcomed, and I. So again, this is sort of where I get into my third read nitpicking <laughs> the vibes of the office are like really really weird like once you like pay attention to it it's like really really out of date but wouldn't i i don't know i mean i i wonder i don't know how to put this but i feel like if you are running a fertility clinic and especially the, i mean and that's not even the right term to use for sure what would we call this <laughs> Effectively, what they're providing is your option of choosing what your child's life would be. At least that's the if you are, yeah, selling. fertility. If you are contour guidement or <laughs> guides, or something the like that. Fertility is nothing more than background. You're having a child. We got that prepared. Now decide which one it's going to be. Yes, a, a genetic and social engineering clinic. Yes. Um, I wonder if you have to have an office that is sort of hearkening back to something else, to to kind of a different time. 
in order to make the weirdness of what you are doing more palatable to your customers. I just wonder, like, so so the reading and the descriptions of it were it's like it, it's a uh, you know '60s '70s like ad office, like super hot mm-hmm. secretaries, and then like a ring banger salesman. Oh, it's it's very it's very Mad Men, right? And actually, this whole story is. This is like a male-centric story that does not care to be anything else. It's Mad Men with, like, IBM slash Apple campus dressing in terms of mm-hmm. what, what the setting kind of is. It's, I mean, like, I, see, it's I don't the, get, it's like... It's the waiting room in Westworld. That is an accurate description. I like that. Um, but, like, I, I just, I get a very, yeah, a very different vibe. Like, a non, like... Not genetic company, but like the salespeople for it vibe, I guess. So I guess it does kind of make sense, but... I think you would like the genetic company, BJ. I think the vast majority of people in this situation would like to forget what is actually going on in the situation. <laughs> that, that is fair. It, it, it's, it's such as in literature, such as in life, BJ. Well, it's interesting, too, the experience that, you know, we have as you go through it. Because, like BJ said, it starts out kind of with edges of sleaze attached to it. Where mm-hmm. all the women are very much purposely described as attractive. Some of their interactions with the character are a little bit odd. The um, hyperactive, very alpha man kind of salesman that comes in. And then it goes into the stories themselves, and you can lose yourself in those. But then the feeling of being kind of an awkward experience just accelerates with the main character as we as we spend more time there yeah well and it's so like that so what you know what happens and i'd, I'd just like to get there because i want to talk a little bit more about like kind of what happens in the story. So, no I, I actually want to get to when when he's watching these stories because like sure. there's some there is so. some interesting stuff going on there in terms of like exactly this conversation we're having about like what is the setting and what is this actually hearkening back to so pt barnum is trying to fool all of the fools all the time (laughs) so the sale the salesman takes um sam back into kind of this theater essentially um offers him some drinks Mm -hmm. because one is shown to be good for optimal viewing and receptivity and he already knows what his drink is because he, uh, Sam and his wife, I think it's Anna, had to mm-hmm. fill out detailed forms about their own background. That's the key mm-hmm. part of the experience that Vitek, I think is the name of the company, mm-hmm. offers. Yes. Is that Although it seems like Anna has done most of this. And which was already really weird to me. Mm-hmm. The fact that they did this entirely separate from each other mm-hmm. was just strange. and seems almost intentional to be strange, just to estrange that. The word I'm trying to say. Uh, Sam from his wife when it comes to the experience mm-hmm. of the story. So do you, th- mm-hmm. you think they have twin beds in separate bedrooms? Uh, assuming they <laughs> Are we going right back to the 60s? <laughs> um, um, well, so the key part that you're, and you have to watch an orientation on this is that it's not just you're, we're going to help you have a child. We're going to give you the option to pick what your child next 30 years of life will be based on our complex understanding of various data points about where you, where they live, what what their parents are like, what the circumstances they would have, where they're likely to go to school. Not only from the various genetic factors that we can emphasize or not in their portfolio, we can also then basically let you know what kind of life they're going to lead throughout most of their adulthood. And then we have already apparently, and it seems very clearly they actually hired actors to film this, which just makes it all the more awkward for me. <laughs> uh, we have 
prepared uh, several movies on the subject. And those movies in this case are that Anna has already, having done the initial legwork, tailored the three that she enjoyed and is now letting him pick. Yeah, these are are her, like, top three choices, which is really important. And distinctly, and this is something the salesman highlights early, she picked three very distinct options. Which is not what most people do. Most people, it's variations on a theme. Right. And, like, when I, when I usually pick something, I'm narrowing it down to the three things that are kind of fitting into the zone I like. And then someone else can pick within that zone I've already enjoyed. Anna here either has incredibly diverse tastes, or she's purposefully trying to give Sam a array of options to pick from. Mm-hmm. Here. Mm-hmm. But they go down to the movie theater, he gets his drink, which they already know about, because they know all about him. And we sit down for the first movie, where all of these are the movie of it's David, it's the name of the kid, right? Well, mm-hmm. it changes. It's Daniel. David. Daniel. Well, they have different names, Spencer. I was, that's why I'm asking this. Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah. There it, was a question mark at the end of all of that. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so, so one of them's David, one of them's Daniel, or maybe two of them are the same. I don't remember now. Um, yeah, I don't. I actually don't remember this detail yet. Uh, They're generic white man names. Yeah, so <laughs> I think it's Daniel, uh, David. Daniel, I like to think Daniel. of the the artistic one as David. Yeah. Uh, no, they're all they're all Daniel. They are. All right. Yeah, there's a David. All right. <laughs> you are correct, with Spencer. Okay. So, we, again, we see the various permutations of the life of Daniel in three different versions, and the first one is. He does the not most lie down straightforward. With the first one is a happy kid who goes on to try to lead a happy, a happy life and sees the difficulties in being an easygoing person in a world and business that is ready to abuse that, to make use of your easygoing nature to their best benefit rather than yours. And then the life decisions that occur as a result of that in terms of going the classic route, going to a liberal arts school, going to the big job in the city and either an ad firm, law firm, not sure which. Doesn't uh, matter. That's what they say. And then when he can't, he then teaches. (laughs) Yes, he does. He, you know, he has (laughs) has the nice, nice, pretty blonde wife. He has the kids, but Richard realizes that he's not having the life he wants to lead in terms of living this big city business life. And so he goes to a small town. They move to a small town with the implication being they're going to set down roots there and be far happier as a result. A conscious decision of this is the person I am. I'm not altering myself for the world. So I will find where I best fit in the world. Mm -hmm. Yep. And our story ends, and our, we're then left for Sam to express what he thought of that. And yep. how would you guys summarize what his initial thoughts about that story are? This is, this is the one he takes the best, I would say. Uh, but I would also, I would, I would hearken back to our, our first story and the Amazon reviews that came for ARC, which was a strong meh. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is basically his reaction. is like, why does he need to be unhappy in the middle? Which is the, mm-hmm. the point that he often references. And then yes. we get what is just the maxim by which the salesman lives by is that, oh, well, we need the, sec- the three-act structure. There has to be drama in the middle. It's almost to the point where you're wondering, are we just they're creating the drama for the sake of giving you a digestible three-act story? Um, hmm. Well, which and, and this is so interesting, and I want to talk about this later, but given the fact that we are talking about this story as a whole as a two-act story, I, this is like a real wink-wink, nudge-nudge, yes. too. What is going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, so we go, we go through the first story. We can address them in summary or after. We, we then enter the second story, which is now for something different. Poet we, da- Daniel. We see very much the bohemian version of Daniel, mm-hmm. of where this is the Daniel that always marched to the beat of his own drum. 
that he, at early age, was butting, at, butting heads with people about whether he wanted a nap. He wasn't attending tests because he wanted to write poetry and he's not going to let you tell him otherwise. And when he's driving to the big city, the same way that all three of our Daniels do, he's doing it alone in his car with his very old-style typewriter there sitting next to him. So I had to Google what this uh, object <laughs> was because they never they don't bother to tell you it's a typewriter until the end of the damn story. Um, he lives the life of a struggling writer in the big city. He works various odd jobs, primarily at restaurants. He eventually strikes it big in a moment of frustration, having, you know, said fuck you to all the various problems of the world. He decides to write a book entitled Fuck You, United States, and it sells like hotcakes. And he then has Spirals the Spirals into fame and gets yes. drunk on it. <laughs> Quite literally. <laughs> a life of debauchery ensues. Uh, he writes a follow-up, Fuck You, Europe, because that one needed to happen. Uh, and at the end of the story, having enjoyed question mark, quotation mark, uh, the much, much debauchery <laughs> as possible, he ends the story on what the salesman views as an incredibly hopeful note of where he's alone in the early morning, he looks off at his typewriter, he gets a wry grin on his face, and then the story ends, which to, the, to our salesman is just the best ending possible, and to Sam is the most frustrating way to end you ever could. Sam, oh, Sam is devastated by this. Sam, as a parent, has just been horrified as the story's been going on, but his, his view is not improved by what is apparently viewed as a hopeful end to the second act that he sees here as, you know, they're exiting this drama. Mm -hmm. From his perspective, this was just a life of struggle and pain and fuck you to everyone around him that doesn't seem like it was worth it. And then we get this sort of for Sam. weird, like, uh, response by HT, which is just like, you mean you wouldn't, you know be an asshole for or no, that's, oh, that's the second that's the third one yes hc's uh, defense of this story is just like, simply oh it's the, cla the classic story he finally at the end learned what he really loved and is getting back to that is this the, is it after this story that sam orders a second drink yep yeah he's not doing the third story sober and ht is not pleased yes no ht is an art is ht has a lot of pride in this he's really approaching these stories as if he's their director as if you know he is the artist that wants you to experience it in the way that he wants you to experience he is it. the narrator uh not within the story no it's a, it's a woman that's narrating each one he's he's the uh intro narrator i believe is he i think i think they say it's the same woman each time is narrating them. No, no no not like not the intro to each daniel story the the intro like for the company Oh, yes. So yes. he's like the mm -hmm. the face mm -hmm. of the company mm -hmm. and the like architect and whatever selling the 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 bill of rotten goods yeah he's he's not the he's not the one though that's piped in waterfall noises throughout the entire building though that's a that's another doctor <laughs> we never meet he's probably the one that mandated there'd be popcorn for sale in the middle of, middle of the platform <laughs> um but we, we we end our second story sam is increasing sam is not only increasingly uncomfortable he's increasingly starting to second guess what his wife's trying to tell him mm -hmm. his, his immediate experience of each of these stories is what is this saying about me he immediately makes it very personal. It's just like, what is my wife saying about me? Which and what says I want. Or, or herself, too. Yes. Because the first story was actually, like, most closely tracking, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember the first story as kind of most closely tracking what it is um, that Sam actually does. Mm, I don't know that actually does, in, in terms of, like, the job that Daniel left. Not the specific job, but the trajectory. It, it, it matches both that and his wife's. Of mm -hmm. the, in, in the first story he's yeah. commenting on is that what is his wife saying about her own possible dissatisfaction with our life? 
Yes. Because we made the decision to work the professional jobs, to go to the big city, to get the, you know, the three bedroom mm -hmm. walk up. Right. Is she now saying that she's unhappy with that? Is she now second guessing the life that we're living together? That's the doubts he already starts to have with the, with the first story. The second story he views as like an indictment of him is that suddenly it's saying, well, these are the decisions I made. Are you saying I should have taken the artistic pathway? I mean, I studied literature back in school. I wrote papers mm -hmm. on that. Are you saying that I should have been a starving artist? What are you, what are, what are you condemning about me? He's getting increasingly mm -hmm. defensive now as these stories are going through. And, and now then, we go into the third one. Then we have our third act. <laughs> Daniel in part three. Uh, this Daniel is built around the idea that he's an asshole. He always was an asshole. He may always be an asshole. But there could he's be the, a hope. He is not. He, yeah, he's the private school Hopefully. lacrosse asshole. Yes. This, this, he is the this, jock. He is the, you know, sort of friendly with everybody, but they all secretly hate him. Um, he's, he's entitled. Yes, he's entitled. He's sort of, he's the guy that makes the uh, corporate job for Daniel one miserable. Um, and he sort of eventually gets fired for sleeping with everybody except for his fiance. And that's driven in large part because he is in some ways that good. He is the kind of person that naturally succeeds at whatever he sets his mind in a way that Sam is immediately frustrated with because he doesn't view himself in that light and has had mm -hmm. always somewhat, somewhat of a grudge on those who can just effortlessly succeed in that manner. Mm -hmm. And this Daniel develops the, ar the arrogance that, come, that can come with that, yeah. which leads to him, you know, succeeding but often abusing those around him without any care in the world, engaging in illicit relationships and then proudly admitting it to the really like you like you said sir the very much madman high fives as he walks out the door from having been fired from you know screwing interns over the course of the summer mm -hmm. um and then, and then sort of needs like goes to uh law firm or whatever and does, well, he spends a long time out of work. Yeah, spends point. a while out of work, mm -hmm. finally sort of goes to like a much smaller law firm somewhere, uh, introduces him to himself to the what he presumes is the secretary of this law firm, and it's the named partner, um, or like the only person that works there. It's sort of unclear. And mm -hmm. presumably will be learning humility from there and right. maybe successful. And Gets hired as the secretary, more or less. And or the receptionist. And we don't actually see the end. Do we see the end of the story? I can't remember if it, no, if I, it ends here or our main character cuts it off here. I think it ends mm. there. Maybe. And then... It, it certainly ends for our main character there, because he's done with the story at this point. Yes. Uh, like, like you said, BJ, this, story's, this third story is very much a humility-focused story, whereas you might say the first story was about finding your place, the second one's about finding your purpose or finding your drive. The third one's very much about finding humility later in life. Yep. And Sam is outright angry at this story. He's directly confronting the salesman in a way the salesman's actually cut off guard about. Because from the salesman's perspective, and this is BJ, was what you were, you were referencing, yeah. well, the idea of being an asshole for 30 years, but then learning how to be a good person for 50 is a wonderful trade. For Sam, though, mm -hmm. the idea of having to start the story as an asshole to make that possible is just a point. Yep. Um, and then we sort of get the revelation about Sam and Annie, where sort of they are in their lives when sort of they're talking about the second act difficulties that sort of everybody has to have, where Sam's in his third act and sort of is going to be boring forever, but Annie is uh, not, and she's in her second act. Um, she's she's and... capable of making a shift in a different direction, and apparently, according to the salesman, Sam is not. Mm -hmm. Right. And that... 
Upon being confronted with what he's now viewing as the many lives that he could have led, as well as the many lives that his child could lead, uh, upon being told as well that his wife has options that he, by their definition, inherently lacks, Sam does not leave this situation well. So he goes into full Daniel too. Fuck this, fuck that, <laughs> fuck you. He I'm going to get drunk. He says this as he's trying to get to his Tesla. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, he peels out of there uncommitted, his cell phone vibrating constantly because his wife clearly wants to you know, have the conversation with him, which, again, if y'all were in this circumstance, would you ever want to do this separately in solo? Because I cannot imagine I would. Maybe it'd be more effective if you got entirely separate opinions, but that would be, as we see here, so awkward and unpleasant. I mean, yeah, I feel I, like... I, I... Go ahead, ahead, BJ. No, it's fine. (laughs) This is kind of like the restaurant conversation for something that actually matters. Mm. Where it's just like, well, I don't know what I want to eat. How about Chinese? Or, or, you know, how about like one of these three places? Okay, I like that one. And to do that to a kid is just super funny. Um, But I think it also says something about like, um, and I sort of want to talk about this, like once we're done talking about the plot and maybe a little of the story, what we think of the character Annie, because mm-hmm. I feel like what we don't get about her and what we do get about her sort of paints an interesting picture. Yeah, and and kind of building off that, my thought about doing this separately is that I think objectively I would want to do this in the room with my partner at the same time. Mm-hmm. However... I do think that it makes a lot of sense to do this separately if you think that you are just going to cave to the opinion of your partner. Um, If you have the kind of personality that is a a pleaser and you are willing to not get what you actually want from the world if your partner is in the room expressing an opinion contrary to your own. Um, So my, and, and I know, I'm sure we'll talk about this more later to your point, Uh, BJ, but like what this reads as to me is Annie does not believe that she can in the room get what she wants. And so she has provided three options that she does like independently of what Sam would have told her that he likes. It's interesting that he hates all of them. Yeah. I, I really like that read. It seems the more the story goes on, even looking back early on, the two of them do not share as close of a relationship as we might Mm-mm. have been. I don't even say if we get the, 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 the really story. Even early on, we see examples of him like having to pause to add exclamation marks when he's sending texts and things like that to do the little bits of affection that would show that they have necessarily a kind of close relationship. And with the options that she gives him, I think she's giving him a lot of freedom, but it's purposefully at a distance. She's giving him just the utter ends of the spectrum of options, but without being there purposefully to experience them with him because mm-hmm. she doesn't know how he's going to react. She, they're not that close to have her, to give her not necessarily, necessarily much of an insight. Interesting. But, and it's interesting that Sam immediately from, from the first, and we, as you both said, from the first of these videos, thinks that this is a test of some sort. Not that this is some sort of collaborative effort that they're involved in. It's a mix between a test and an indictment. Mm-hmm. That Sam is, as we start to realize, is so damn insecure that just the mere idea of pondering his own foibles or pondering his own decisions just sends him on an immediate spiral. Yeah, and I, I mean, and I think we get a little bit more background what, in, in our second yeah. act. <laughs> yes. So, he's, so he's, Sam takes off in his Tesla and is sort of about to, to go home. Race home angry. Mm-hmm. 
And... Uh, but he can't get there right away because now, right now he's raging against the machine and doing whatever the GPS tells him not to. <laughs> because he's very much intentionally trying to not follow the path that is being set for him. Um... And it drives him to a very much one of those bars you see along the interstate that never are doing as well as they may have in the past. And uh, he decides to get drunk and make himself unpleasant to all the patrons and the barkeep. And, well, and before we even get to him actually being in the bar, we get him imagining the scenario of him being in the bar, which was a uh, yes. weird little scene. Yes, that was a weird vignette that, that reminded me of some movie, and I can't place which it is, where, like, main characters would just have, like, visions of, of what they sort of wanted to do. Um, and And I think... Like, maybe this is sort of my coloration of, of the story, but, like, he sort of wanted his wife to be having an affair with H.T. and him going in and, like, punching H.T. and I don't even know winning her back, but just, like, having that interaction was what he wanted at that point. Well, that would have been, like, much easier than what the reality is. Oh, yeah. This just, it's a story in reflection of his, bu- of his uh, abused masculine self that, you know, he feels like he's been personally attacked as a man by what he's gone through and needs to reassert it. I don't think it's necessarily about winning her back. He just needs to prove his power over somebody that has, you know, offended him in this manner. And so he punches HT as if the two of them are having an affair, and then we immediately cut back to him in the car, which is kind of jarring, with a drunk banging on the window saying, ask if he's okay. I would also point out that it's it's interesting, Spencer, that you say that he needs to just get back at the person who offended him. And in this in this fantasy, it is... He has both HT and Annie there because I don't think he knows where to direct his anger. Oh, he's, he's, I agree. I think he's blaming both in their own ways. He just can more emotionally easily do that with respect to the salesman that he doesn't know than the love of his life. Rather than be self-reflective, as probably he should be. Well, he eventually gets punched in the face due to his own actions, but it takes him a while to get there. Also, with the self-reflective character, BJ, we do not have a story here. <laughs> no. That's true. That's probably true of many, many, many books. Um, so well, He goes into the bar. He's very much out of place, and that fits what, what his experience at the bar is. Of where he's very much... The description we get of Sam is that he's a pretty well-off yuppie. I mean, he bought himself a fucking Tesla as a, as a Christmas gift. That gives us enough of a range already. Mm-hmm. Um and this is much more of a, I won't say working class bar, but every Joe kind of bar. It's it's a um, bar where you order a beer and he's asking, a sen- like he was asking about a sen- what gins they had. And, he, and then it's just like, never mind, just give me whatever you have on the top shelf and that'll be okay. And, it, and it's served in a whiskey glass rather than the martini glass he wanted. Um, but he, ha- he has his drink and we start to have him bond with the drunk next to him at the bar. Presumably the one that knocked on the road of the car uh, before he followed him in. And we start to learn a lot more about Sam's past, which gives us a lot more understanding of why he reacted how he did to some of these stories that he saw previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and we basically get the background that his father owned a copper mine that... Well, he bought it when he was like 12. Yes. He didn't start, he didn't start the childhood owning a copper mine. Uh, he went into it because it was his... Right. He followed his dream, he ran this copper mine sort of for a little while, and then it sort of all went to hell in, in the teenage years of, of Sam. And Sam was sort of instrumental in trying to keep this copper mine alive and not basically have the family implode due to uh, bank debts, etc. Which, according to the salesman, was Sam's second act. It was mm-hmm. the drama and the difficulty. After he lived a very privileged 
loving, happy childhood, he suddenly had this burden to overcome that then informed what his adulthood thereafter would be like, as he very much then modeled his life of avoiding the risks that he condemned his father for. Uh, embodied in, I mean, his summary of his father is very much told in the story, that, that uh, one gambling story of when he emptied out all of their savings, drove mm-hmm. to Vegas, and put it all on black, what, six times or something? Six times, yeah. Which, to him, is just inherently abhorrent that he would even take that kind of risk with the family's life and savings, which was the same thing he essentially did with the copper mine, but then also how futile it ultimately was. That he would risk everything he had, everything we had, for this desperate gamble to make his dream work, and all it did was buy him 14 months. And so in his mind, this just summarizes the very harsh view that he has of his father going forward into adulthood, how much he's built his life on never, ever putting his family in that kind of situation, or himself in that situation. And yeah, so we sort of get these interactions and they're sort of interspersed with the the real world of his wife trying to get in touch with him. And he finally gets angry enough at his wife, phone, whatever, that he drops it into his water glass, um, which was presumed, <laughs> his presum- presumption was after the barkeep said, like, let me give you a glass of water and then we'll talk about another drink. Mm-hmm. However, it was really the what was it vodka of the, the guy of the big guy with vodka baseball soda, hats he, yes, yeah, mm-hmm. who did not take kindly to his drink being phone contaminated and proceeds no, to and yeah. laid Sam out. Yeah, it oh, didn't have yeah. quite the buzz he was hoping for. <laughs> this is that guy responding to this challenge to his masculinity when laying Sam out in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam gets revived eventually, and sort of apologizes to everybody and and asks the bartender why the bartender doesn't like him. Where did yeah, that it's essentially a closing start? time at this point, right? Yeah. Yeah, Sam's been out for long enough they should have called an ambulance. Yeah, <laughs> there is brain damage happening here. Eh, you wouldn't but, notice. But having been thoroughly knocked out and more importantly sobered up, he's now gotten reflective and is realizing, that, like you said, BJ, the bartender does not like him and has not mm-hmm. since he arrived. And he's curious why. And the bartender tells him. But the bartender sort of doesn't, because he's just like, well, we had a kid, and then we wanted one more, and we kept trying to make it work, and, like, the second kid turned out to be triplets, and so, you know, we kept figuring out ways to make it work, and, you know, it was a tough life, and we kept scrimping and saving, and, you know, one child got a little bit more than some of the others, and then we had therapy, Mm -hmm. and it was an interesting day, and I like your father better than I like you, and... (laughs) In terms of unpacking this story, I'm curious what y'all think, because I, I had, like, two different reads about what his intent was here. See, clearly at the end he's saying, I'm more with your father than I am with you, and that is a, meant to be a very biting statement. Mm-hmm. But is a statement about, you know, I embody more your father in the sense of the sacrifices I was doing for the family and all the work I put into that, or I envy your father in the idea that he was willing to fight for his dream, whereas I sacrificed everything to make my children's lives that little fraction better, and in the end... I'm presuming with the direction they're ultimately going with the daughters, that she didn't want all those sacrifices and all that pressure point upon her. How did you guys read what the intent of the bartender story was? So so this is one of the... Go ahead, BJ. I was going to say, like, I, I, I want to wait because how I interpret the bartender story is sort <laughs> of how I interpret the story, which is slightly differently. So uh, go ahead, Sarah. Well, what I was going to say is that Um, this interaction is actually one of the reasons that I really like this story 
um, or at least forgive this story, some of its shortcomings that I <laughs> that also exist. But it is indicative of what I was saying before, that there are things that are brought to the surface in this story, in my reading of it, that we do not get in other stories related to the premise of this collection, the forward collection, mm-hmm. that I really appreciate. And that is specifically a a deep consideration of class mm-hmm. sure um and we just don't get that in other stories which like a lot of sci-fi is not like talks maybe about um well there there are a number of different ways in which class can potentially come out but to talk about it simply in terms of class is at least in this collection uh, a rare occurrence which i think is a real detriment to the collection mm-hmm. um or this was and, an inclusion of it, and so... Well, that's that's fair. Um, that's fair. And as we have talked about before, you know, short stories particularly have to make very careful decisions about what they are going to talk about and focus on and what, and what they are not. Mm-hmm. Um, I really appreciate, and I promise I'm getting to the answer to this question, <laughs> but I really appreciate that this story, in this second act particularly, is really focusing on what it means to have access to this technology and not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, the answer is to your question, Spencer, the answer is the former that the bartender is identifies with Sam's father because of, despite all of his kind of fuck upery and all of the things that he does that are absolutely insane. Um, that he identifies with him both on the decisions that he had to make um, to succeed in the world, but also the idea that, like, if you are not from a privileged family, you have to take risks. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you win a copper mine, or sometimes you win back your copper mine, or whatever the fuck that story was. And sometimes <laughs> you get triplets. Like, um, and that is when you do not have the privilege to choose what it is that is coming after you, the life that you can give your child, the, the life that you can give your family that you have to take those risks. Um, and like, I, I found this bartender like completely convincing. I realized that he kind of, I think to your point, BJ talked around what his actual issues with Sam were. But I think that in describing his situation, he was right on the money with like what the lingering resentments of a man in a Tesla who has just been to a, this type of fertility clinic coming into this bar. Yeah. Um, what that might provoke. And then, we get the continuation of Daniel 2 with a $200 mm-hmm. fuck you tip. Mm-hmm. Which, which is a very telling response from a person that just had in some ways their privilege challenged to just drop $200 and walk out of the room. Yeah, yeah. this is fine, right? This works. This is good. We're good now. And right? somehow doesn't have a waterproof iPhone, but whatever. Because um, he clearly has an iPhone, by the way. It's also not Nick alone that's also commenting on the fact that uh, Sam is forgotten aspects of just how privileged that he is. I mean, he mm-hmm. may have had a somewhat mm-hmm. difficult childhood. Even 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 describing a somewhat difficult childhood, based on the descriptions we get, he was a pretty privileged middle-class kid, and then life got harder in the middle because the dad decided to bet everything on black. Yes. And it still ended up pretty well, which the other drunk at the bar comments on is that, well, you know, as rough as your life with your dad was, you really have a nice suit you're wearing right now, mm-hmm. and that's your car you drove in, right? I don't have a car. I walk here. Let's consider that for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he 
has even more weird interactions, which is he tries to call his wife and apologize um, now that he's presumably sobered up enough that we're not going to deal with the drunk driving that he's been going to do or been doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, realizes that there's a telephone nearby. He doesn't have change and then decides to break that that it's too emasculating to go back into the bar to ask for some change so he breaks into uh Nick's truck as it turns out yes and sees a picture of his family is somehow overcome with i'm an idiot still steals the change calls his wife doesn't do anything and then just says i'm so sorry before time runs out and then we have our third weird act it's it's either the beginning of a third act or at least the exit plan for the second act, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, of apparently, we all see this kind of in retrospect. He goes back to the fertility clinic, and it's unclear. What is so wild about this story is that in sort of it is unclear if he goes back because of his own sort of queasiness about the situation that we I think have been pretty well describing through throughout this episode or if he goes back because of some sort of Stephen King mislike army conspiracy theory oh yeah really we, we it did ignore <laughs> we, that we left we left that out i left that intentionally because that was just i was well, i'm here to bring it in spencer <laughs> so apparently vitek is it was is now in the building that raytheon was in and you know probably is still there and there's this whole conspiracy that they're using your genetic samples to uh, harvest information or something. This is this is not Nick's theory. This is not Sam's theory. But this is the companion at the bar's theory. Yes, Beezer is his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he offers this theory, which Sam at this point is not drunk enough just to accept and just kind of laughs it off. But like you said, Sarah, and in terms of interpreting the ending, we're not clear how much that idea festered or not because we don't. This is the moment we lose Sam as our perspective. Yes. Once we now enter the third act, we are from Nick's perspective, and all we can do is just hear what Sam is telling us about what happened. That he went back, and by various means, he got his, what is the euphemistic way they refer to it, his sample back, and drops it on the table there in front of him. And then we get a really kind of odd scene of they're all just staring at it and pondering it. And And it's even even... weirder because it says a table for four, um, and it's Nick Beezer and sam and uh sam sample yes well speaking as as the woman in this conversation i did not realize that men did not just sort of stare at sperm all together in a group wow i'm so glad we could be here to help you through this moment of realization (laughs) thank you i've learned a lot in the course of this in the course of this discussion i I mean i I presume there are probably some sperm sommeliers somewhere where there is some sort of jesus uh, christ I, if this is indeed part of the experience of being a man, I have missed that second act. I have never had the contemplative bonding experience of sitting around a table in a bar staring at my sample and... Spencer, you need to, like, go through the color, the clarity, the quality. Does it have legs? Do do they still call them, Metaphorical, maybe. uh, What is it, angel's tears? Okay, I'm just going to read the last sentence because I want somebody to explain it for me. Last paragraph, why not? When he finished talking, neither Nick nor Beezer spoke. The three of them sat there in silence, not looking at each other so much as at the middle of the table, at that small plastic container in which there was and wasn't their future. 
in which there was and wasn't ours. What is that? I was baffled by that last paragraph. I felt like I understood the story well enough, particularly in the, sec- in the second playthrough, but that last paragraph just was such a weird, poetic way to, to, to leave this story. So, and now I'll talk about a little bit more of what I think the conversation with the bartender was and the resolution um, and what the, the whole three choices that Annie picked out were. Please. Which, were, which was, it's an indictment of the process itself more than anything else it's the the indictment of choosing the safe path of choosing like things that you think you know are what's going to happen and spending a lot of money to do so and so the it's our future it's the being able to choose at even the contours of your child's path is invasive and problematic and because it's choosing like sort of boring normal things and okay, so you kind of got to the answer of what was going to be my question, I think, at at the end of that answer. But it was the sort of like, is it an indictment of the process or is it an indictment of the idea that you can choose? I, I think it's the the idea that you should choose, that this is something to be vied for mm. rather than reviled that Annie hates this about her husband and that he wants to choose that that he, that this is something that he thinks worthwhile spending money on basically to not just have like some kid and and they're they'll do the best they can and figure it out but they're gonna make very specific choices and you know put a lot of effort into that and I sort of got this a little bit with like the Tesla being, you know, it's sort of a smart car. He spent a lot of money on something with sort of all of the bells and whistles that it's not super fast. It's not super cool. It's kind of like it was the, it's the new Prius of like the, you know, the late nineties or when, whatever. It's sort of like, it's safe. It's, it's middle of the road. It's whatever. And, but it pretends to be something else. Right. And, and I think it's that indictment of choosing the, the path well-traveled um, rather than vying for more. Listen, as someone who owns a Prius BJ, I take offense to this whole conversation. <laughs> well, Sarah, it looked like you had a bit of a response to what BJ was saying there. Um, no, I mean, I actually, I do, I think that that's, I think that that's a fair assessment. I mean, as... Sam is someone who has been, to his mind, burned by the idea of chance, right? He has had things stolen from him, from his father doing whatever his father did. And so he does strike me as a person who is willing to do whatever it takes to eliminate risk from anything. The interesting thing about him is that he wants to eliminate risk from anything while... I don't know if it's presenting or if this like legitimately makes him feel better or what, but he wants to be at the cutting edge of whatever's new while doing that, right? And so this is the Tesla is the new version of the Prius kind of thing, right? It presents as it has this facade of the latest and greatest technology. Um, And I guess this sort of like pseudo fertility clinic does as well. Mm it's using technology it for safety apart. rather than interest. Yes, which is which is 
more privileged than any other position you could take, right? There is, when you have, at least in my mind, when you have the element of risk attached to using or developing or progressing a new technology, that is different than the upper middle class sort of privileged individual harnessing that technology to maintain their privilege, which is exactly what Sam is doing. Did you guys get the impression that Sam didn't really want to have kids? Yes. From the very beginning of the story, he's the one that recommends this clinic, but it's because mm-hmm. the wife wanted to go to IVF, and she was very much distressed about that process. And he, the only reason he recommends this clinic is because he heard it from a well-to-do business associate of his, or well, I think it was a co-worker, maybe. It, yeah, it was both. It was... And mm-hmm. he no, he doesn't want to have kids, but if he is going to have kids to keep his wife happy, which is the sort of underlying theme of this, there's not going to be any chance associated with that right that's what i was going to say is like i don't know that he doesn't want kids but he doesn't want the uh randomness of having a kid and what that could entail and so this is sort of the insane way that he's dealing with that and i Mm -hmm. think that to go back to it his wife annie's choice about the three uh profiles that she chooses like is sort of spitting that in his face yes Because you could design one of these narratives, and I think HT kind of skirts around this subject, but you could design a whole multitude of narratives where your child never has to suffer, they never have to grow, they never have to have pain. And Annie has developed three different narratives that just completely turn that on on its head in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, She seems to be someone who is like actively choosing to have someone have pain for growth, which... You know, if you if Sam took a meta view, that actually might be like a good comment on him, right? Yeah. <laughs> that she is choosing to impart some level of pain and suffering, which he himself at least feels he went through to become a better person. Mm-hmm. That might be a good thing. It's also interesting, too, that a perfectly viable option here is that he just goes back to his wife and expresses what his problems are with each of these stories and offers <laughs> his own recommendations. I thought you were going to say something completely different. <laughs> What were you expecting? What? what? <laughs> that that you don't immediately know is a, much better than telling you. Anyway, he goes back to his wife and expresses his opinions. Go ahead. Sorry. It never seems that Sam even considers the option that his life is not bound by these three options, these three choices. Mm-hmm. It never seems to think that he can offer his own input. Uh, it's he almost he almost acts as if he's under purpose, purposeful helplessness when it comes to that. He's agreed to this process. He doesn't really care enough to have even read the pamphlet. He's letting his wife decide, and he's intending to do nothing more than check a box when it comes to the end of this, rather than actual participate in what's going on. And it makes Which is interesting. A... Go ahead, uh, Spencer. I'm sorry to cut you off. What makes for such a hard read when it comes to Anna as a character is that we only get her through her choices here. She, mm-hmm. her, her role is her choices here, some initial lead up to why he's even in the situation, and a vibrating phone. And otherwise, it's Sam's own prejudices and self-doubts going into what he assumes she's trying to tell him that inform a lot of how we're reacting to her as a character, the degree we could even even call her a character. And, you know, this also sort of brings up the idea that, you know, the kind of the relationship between what happens in the first act and the second act in some ways comes down to um, Sam is a person that things happen to. Um, who has never felt that he has any sort of self-determination and self-will. 
And he has been governed by his father's choices, which he doesn't agree with. And now he's watching three videos of a child who is apparently governed by the sort of genetic choices that his parents are making in this moment. Um, And so I think there is a reading of this story in which Sam's rebellion against that is actually a rebellion against predetermination, which he feels himself as um, kind of subject to and perhaps does not want that for right. his potential child. Yeah, we, we, see, we see that play out when he immediately leaves the bar in just the most petty, childlike ways possible. It's that, you know, he starts rejecting the GPS and it's mm-hmm. suggestions about where he should drive to get home. He starts refusing mm-hmm. to answer his, wife, his wife's phone. It's very much the you can't tell me what to do kind of reaction situation, you know, fitting in the line, like you said, BJ, of Daniel number two. But one thing I'm curious about as well is that when I was reading the story, I at no point at all thought or even necessarily thought I was supposed to believe that these three stories were accurate. I Yeah. I assumed from all the time that these stories were the product of a company that wanted to give you a digestible three-act structure experience of someone's life rather than anything that would resemble how an actual human life would be really lev- led or lived or even how a human life is actually lived in terms of the idea that... I mean, the salesman tries to justify the idea, well, the reason that we like three-act structures is because that's how our lives are really built, and it reflects the human experience. And I'm looking at that going, no, that's, no, that's not really how lives are actually lived from what I've seen of it. You live a lot, you have a lot of, there are a lot of different acts that go into play here. Spencer, you're just and in Act I love- 1. Like, I don't know why... <laughs> if, if it's an Act 1, it has been a meandering Act 1 with a lot of different permutations. Um, what what I also love about this too is that like this is such a meta conversation to be having in this story mm-hmm. because like what is clearly going on here is that this company has kind of imbibed narrative theory and is recreating that in human lives and so it becomes a sort of chicken and egg situation. <laughs> yeah. Of like, do we have the structure because it's actually how we live? Well, no. Humans live in this structure or believe they live in this structure because literature has told us that we do. Mm-hmm. That this is what life looks like. It's an easier way of understanding and experience a lot, experiencing a life than it actually plays out. Absolutely. We, we, we have three-act structure because it's a digestible way of experiencing drama. That's mm-hmm. the reason that it exists. It's so that there can be an introduction, there can be a drop, there can be a conflict, there can be a climax, there can be a conclusion in a way that can unfold in an easily formatable way. It's not because we actually live that. The only way you live that is in retrospect. Yeah, I think I'm in my seventh act at this point. I don't know. Spencer, you're oh, not you're a fan right. of the uh, ring cycle? <laughs> yeah, Wagner and I have some things to talk about. I- I'm really enjoying the little art house theater lives that we're actually leaving in terms of the acts that's going through. The- <laughs> Congratulations, sit down. This is a one-man act that goes on for nine hours. I hope you brought a drink. <laughs> but I-, I, had a- I, had a- I, had a- I had a hard time getting a read on Anne. Anna, uh, just because I did not trust Sam at any point in the story mm. to provide an accurate read on her, mm-hmm. that I got a more—I felt like I got a more accurate impression of Sam and his own insecurities than I ever did of any other character. Yeah, Except and I guess maybe, that's sort of why Nick. I wanted to talk about her because she's not a character in the story, but she's sort of the most important character in the story. Yeah, sure. And I will—I I do think that that's intentional. Like, I think that part of the point of the story from Amor Tolls is, isn't it weird that we don't know from Sam's perspective, or from, yeah, from Sam's perspective, we don't know anything more about his wife. Yeah. Maybe we should think about that. Sure. Um, which is, it, I think it's really interesting that we don't, 
we can speculate till the cows come home about her motivations for presenting these three stories. And there's literally nothing there to tell us what's going on in her mind. Right. Yeah. And we have a main character that is so stubbornly determined not to find out. Mm-hmm. That he's so wrapped up in his, in his own self and his own doubts and his own, his own story that he doesn't do the most simple act possible calling. He can't. Do you think that he's also embarrassed that he doesn't know? I'm sure he is. Which, which if so, is the most is it's just a further reflection of his own immaturity. Mm-hmm. Is that if you don't know, you talk to somebody. That's a relationship. Although I guess, like, is it do, is he self aware and mature enough to to know that he to be embarrassed that he doesn't know? I don't Unclear. Know. <laughs> uh, we we have a main character, kind of similar to Daniel three. We have a main character that is growing up way too late in life. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or way too early, and, or both. Uh, yeah, I think both at the same time, but unclear if he is actually actually grown at the end of this story. Yeah. Uh, and that's hard to unpack, because I, I, my initial read on his, you know, taking up the sample and throwing it on the table was just another further act of immaturity on mm-hmm. rather than some profound action or profound understanding. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think he's grown at all in the course of this story, which I think is, like, super radical in the story itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't really go through the act structure. I don't, it, I don't view us necessarily as entering a, into a third act by the time we're done. Nope. At least not one that is reflective of a character growth. Oh no, I don't. I I think it to me it's a third act because it's a change in how he, like I think it's somebody has decided that he should no longer just sort of go with the flow and be safe, rather than growing as a person and talk to his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is doing what he's doing not well? It's no longer going along with it, sure. But it's not really committing to anything either, I don't think, either. It's well, just... I, I, think it, I think it's the, you know, I'm not going to do this, and I'm, you know, angry and break things, which is a change. It's yeah, just not... But, but, but if, you, if you asked him tomorrow why he did it, I don't know if he could tell you. I think he would concoct a story, whether that is actually true or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can Anna, can, in your, both of your opinions, can Anna and Sam stay together after this? I think you, I think. Well and happily, or can? (laughs) Well, I don't think they're well and happily at the beginning of this story, so. Right. (laughs) Which I I guess is probably a more complicated question, because, like, it does seem like they're already going through a sort of, um, unproductive waiting period anyway. There's definitely an element of realization that they're both in their early 40s and maybe they aren't happy with the lives they're Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? Does that mean that they can go in a different direction together? Can they follow the story of Daniel 1 and set off on a new path? Or is that not part of their narrative? We don't know because they never talk. And And we never know anything else about Anna either. Yeah. And from from Daniel's perspective, he's in a mindset right now of... Sam's perspective. Sorry. Daniel doesn't have a perspective. From Sam, who is wearing <laughs> Daniel's hats at many points in the yes. story. Yes. Uh, I don't think he can imagine a way that their relationship can survive. And I think that's just a further reflection of his own self-doubt issues and immaturity. I, as, as you said, PJ, he's to a certain degree adopted a mindset of just, I'm not going to do what you want, what you want me to do. Mm-hmm. And that can be a motivation, but it's not a story. And I don't know if he's really going to find a way to fit back into any narrative here. It's yeah. not anytime soon. Okay, so I have a question as we are, I, I think, kind of wrapping up our discussion yep. of this story. You both are faced with Daniel 1, 2, and 3. 
which narrative do you choose for your child? I reject the idea of picking one myself without That's my, not fair. Being there. Spencer, just pick one. <laughs> Spencer's going for the alcoholic writer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm living that. I'm not going to pick it. Uh, no, I mean, given the options, there is, there is clear happiness demonstrated within the story of Daniel 1 and a clear direction towards finding it in a way that I'm not as certain with the others. Mm -hmm. So at, at least in that way, Daniel 1 has a family. He has happiness there. And he's finding a place for that to work. That seems hopeful in a way that the other two, I don't think, ever reached that point. But again, I reject the the idea of these stories <laughs> entirely. <laughs> Noted, Spencer. BJ, what about you? Uh, Daniel 1, I don't want to spend time with either of the other Daniels. So to <laughs> actively choose those as my child is just depressing. <laughs> Sarah. Sarah? Oh, Daniel 2. A thousand All percent. right. <laughs> Justify your choice. No, I, I listen. I I think that Daniel two is going to be astronomically successful in the world, um, and it is going to be difficult and it is going to be painful. Um, but you know, I am I am very much in the camp of please, child, go live out the things that I did not do in the world. And mm. Daniel two is that. Well, then that is interesting the way you describe that because that seems to reflect a less I don't want to say necessarily insidious but hidden purpose behind Anna's choices. Yes. Mm -hmm. And is that the interpretation you come down to when it comes to Anna? Because I don't, I don't know if you ever got a clear read of what you think of Anna. Uh, yeah, it's I, I, you know, and I don't, I, you can't have a clear read of Anna of as not. we have as we have talked about. But I do think that there, I have I have two possibilities regarding Anna, and I think one of them actually has a lot to do with both of your choices of Daniel one. Mm -hmm. I, I think that probably. Anna, Anna's choice is also Daniel one, and it was supposed to be like a meant to be an affirmation of her and Sam's life, despite all of the problems we've talked about coming from Sam's perspective again. But like, I do think that that is the most sort of consistently and easily hopeful narrative. And it's the one that most closely kind of mirrors their trajectories, or at least their, their presumed trajectories. Mm -hmm. But I do think that Daniel two has a little bit of the coulda, woulda, shoulda in him and um i identify with that hard and yeah i don't know i i like the idea of even if he's gonna even if my child is going to flame out like do the thing now if you're giving me free reign for option number four i call my wife and say you know what on retrospect <laughs> let's just go to a regular ivf clinic clear out a few genetic disorders and throw the dice because that sounds like a much more interesting way of doing this fair enough you'll end up with a copper mine spencer i'm content with that <laughs> Um, Was there anything else we want to talk about with this story? Well, I mean, it's interesting to hear your both reflections on Anna, because I think in the end, I default more to her. I don't. Want to, I have a hard way of describing her, because every lens we have in the story of her is negative, because uh, it's all from Sam, and he increasingly starts to distrust her as the story goes on. But I view her as going into this, to trying to make whether she was comfortable with this company or not, trying to actually offer honest choices and trying to, you know, legitimately ponder this in a way that Sam isn't. That I think she wants kids and that if this is the way he's willing to do that or go about that, she's willing to go into it both eyes open and offer what she actually wants out of it, rather than necessarily viewing all of this as an opportunity to speak to Sam. Now, I say that, but I feel like the author's trying to speak to Sam through her and that offers a different way of experiencing it. I think in the end, the author comes down decidedly negatively to the even concept of this as a technology that's developing. Mm -hmm. um, 
which is fair, but it, the fact that I was so strongly getting the author's voice at the end of the story was one of the things I did not like. Um, in the, thank you, PJ. I appreciate the mind listings you just sent me. Surprisingly, uh, it's only about 7,500 for a 40-acre load claim. Well, <laughs> like we heard from Sam, it's a horrible business investment. Uh, I, particularly on second read, liked this story a lot once I just saw it as really an interesting analysis of Daniel, of Sam's psychology. I'm going to keep on mixing up Daniel and Sam constantly, <laughs> and I think that's intentional. <laughs> uh, um, but it's such an interesting analysis of Sam's experience and going in and unpacking that. I really enjoyed that particularly on second read through once I realized that was kind of the point. And the fact that the story ends on kind of returning to the technology kind of comment, at least that's one way of interpreting it, I did not like. Because I, I had fully mm. left that as setting. Yeah. I'd fully left that as yeah. background. And now that the story's kind of returning to a very kind of author speaking to the indictment of that technology and what it means for the future, I don't know why that was necessary. I don't. I almost prefer if the story had ended without our code at the end returning to Nick's perspective. Because I didn't get anything out of the ending that I felt was necessary or felt was on point for what I was actually yeah, I agree with that. On the whole, I once I realized what the story was, and it's interesting to see that I kind of need that. I kind of need to have an, an accurate impression of the story I'm experiencing early rather than later for me to best enjoy it. I did like it. I did find it particularly interesting, and it has made for a wonderful discussion for me in terms of you know hearing what you guys have to think about it and better understanding my own view. Well, I was going to say, I think it's interesting that... You know, we all, of the three stories that we have read, we have all found ARC to be the most enjoyable and successful story to read. We have had more and more interesting topics of discussion in this story than we did in ARC. Mm-hmm. I think that often happens with a less complete story. Yeah, that's that's fair. There are there are loose ends here and intentional loose ends here that that really just foster more deep thinking about the story than... You know, the fact that Ark is, like, pretty tightly constructed right. mm-hmm. doesn't allow for that. And that is cl- very much the biggest difference, is that Ark is conclusive. It has a story, and it is done. Its character arc is completed. We see all of the contours completely, you know, done. Whereas in this story, it is intentionally as many loose threads as possible. There is not a single complete description that we ever get in this story. And I know that's intentional. And it makes for fun discussion. It makes ultimately for a less satisfactory read. But I feel like in some ways that's because it's intentionally not trying to be necessarily... I wouldn't call Ark a three-act. It kind of is. But it's intentionally not wanting to be that. In some ways it's wanting to provide commentary on that of, no, no, let's see a moment in a guy's second act and ponder what that means and where it could go. Yeah. And maybe maybe that's one of the, you know, I think that one of the things that we have done over the course of this podcast is try to figure out, like, okay, what is it that makes, in our eyes, a successful story or not? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, while I don't think that we would we would call this an entirely successful story because there are all kinds of other things going on, too, the intentionality of what is left open, I think, is probably a factor that we can add to our list, right? right. Yeah. Um, Instead I, of a sort of, like, meandering, unintentional right. I, openness. I, I think it's the kernel of this, the intentionality of this, is successful. I think it gets lost at a few times, and I think it has some mm-hmm. unnecessary distractions from that and takes a while to get to its point. But what it wants us to think about and experience, I think it does successful. Yeah, I do too. I, you know, did some, to your point, Spencer, difficult moments in this story. But overall, I think it 
does what it meant to do, and I appreciate what it meant to do. Peter, closing thoughts? Um, I think it's interesting that Raytheon is now defunct, and it's now Raytheon Technologies as of earlier this year. Um, <laughs> With the Wikipedia spiral begins. Uh, yeah. Um, it frustrates me when there's sort of nebulous tech sometimes to back up a story that mm. is in some ways very specific but can't be because it's just you know not based enough in science to be hard sci-fi and not uh you know nebulous enough to be soft sci-fi um does sorry to interrupt but does what is amor toll's background like of all i mean of his us. his novel is not a science fiction novel. No, he is. So, like, how did he get chosen for this collection? I mean, he, just because he wrote a good book? I think so. I mean, he's. He I say not... like that's a problem in the world. I mean, <laughs> that <laughs> and maybe people Blake Crouch was kind of friendly with. Yeah, it does seem to be a kind of insider circle. He notably, hasn't, he notably hasn't written much. He's had three novels and this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has a background. He's a, he has an MA in English from. He graduated from Yale and is an MA in English from Stanford. Um, okay. And otherwise, his Wikipedia entry is three paragraphs, so I can't tell you much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he taught in China for a period. <laughs> yes. That's it. That's what that, that informs it. everything. Uh, he He's collects railing fine against arts and the uh, one-child policy. <laughs> uh, he has. He has two children. See, he's railing against the one-child yes. policy. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I think like ultimately, like the the themes were more f- successful than a lot of the parts of the story were. Well, that does that does lead to an interesting comment. Now, we're going to address this in our Coda episode, all of these. But we have had three different stories that have used technology in different ways. Uh, we talked about the first one. The technology focus was very much, I felt, background or just setting or even just wallpaper to what the actual story wanted to be. Whereas in the second story, the technology is so heavily focused on at times that it just comes across as a rant from a character mm-hmm. just speaking to me about it. This third one, other than a brief, overly excessive rant on credit scores, uh, the technology definitely informs the first half of the story. But I can't say it's necessarily the focus, or at least not the focus of what we're, I think we're agreeing on is the real point. Well, I think the what Sarah was talking about with sort of the upper middle class using technology as uh, sort of bumpers and safety rails is something that the sci-fi aspect of it is a little bit necessary Mm -hmm. but like it didn't really in some ways matter what he chose to get that sort of overall feel across yes in that section but like then the individual and so why did you have to go into so much why did he have to go into so much weird detail about what that technology was in the first place right it, it almost feels like it's a very much intentional sci-fi story of let me comment on a present human condition kind of issue through means mm-hmm. of sci-fi tech. So it's in some mm-hmm. way I can trick you that you're that you're hearing that. Yeah. That that is that is the classic kind of purpose of sci-fi. It's like you know a lot of classic sci-fi narratives are built around. I feel like in some ways this one is doing that more than there are other two have been. Yeah. Yes. At least a little bit but more heavy-handedly. Your... Yeah. But to your point, BJ, I like I would read an entire collection of stories and maybe there's one out there i don't know but i would read an entire collection of stories that is specifically focused on the ways in which the middle to upper middle class harness new technologies to maintain their status like that that is really interesting to me i mean there are a lot of stories on that we can buy you a case of gin and a typewriter and (laughs) 
Perfect. If, you, if you'd like to watch a mediocre movie with Matt Damon, I can recommend one that came out at just that point. <laughs> um, any final comments? I'll be curious to see where this falls and our other... What, we have three more that we're reading of this? Or? Mm-hmm. I'll, yeah, we have reached our midway point at this point. So I've got a hard... I have a hard choice of which one I like best and a hard choice of the one I like least. And this one is somewhere in the middle. And I'll be really curious to mm-hmm. find out where it ends up compared to our other three we're going to add in. Off the top of my head, I can only remember two of the other three, so that should tell you something. <laughs> and which one are we reading next? Um, which one are we reading next, BJ? So... It's either Summer Frost or um, the uh, conversation one, which I don't remember the title right now. Um, oh, that's the last conversation, yes, the isn't last it? last conversation. Uh, that's the one I couldn't remember that we were doing. Um, I think I would choose to read the last conversation next. I think it, it flows more easily from this one. Yep, that sounds good to me. Um, okay. And was this the I'm... one that was really ungodly long? No, 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 no. no. That's Summer Frost. Gotcha. Yes. Um, we're, we're pushing off the, the homework <laughs> another week. Uh, to, to, to offer a, a preamble, uh, this one is rated a four in terms of the Amazon reviews. I think they're all basically rated a four in terms of the Amazon yeah. reviews, right. which I find right. very funny. Why did everyone rate Jameson? Let's check that now. It's also a four, I think. Um, 4.2. A... It's the winner. There you go. Okay. Clear winner. Clear winner. Um, nope, if nope, people are... is a 4.3. <laughs> what the fuck? Um, <laughs> BJ, if people are looking for things that are rated a 5, where might they go? Um, this is true, that. guys. This is real. <laughs> <laughs> if you uh, have any questions, comments, or suggestions and uh, want more of our content, we have uh, everything on our webpage, mangumtalks.com. You can find our uh, various podcasts, pretty much wherever you get podcasts, Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, or um, any of those platforms. Um, you can also check out our podcast within a podcast, Potting Around, where we are on a brief hiatus as we are about to dive into Sarah's favorite of the uh, Harry Potter books, book four, which has some title. Um, the Goblet of Fire. Yes. I almost came up with it this time. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so if you have any questions, comments, or otherwise, you can uh, contact us through the website or go to our Facebook page, uh, which is uh, Mangum Reads, and uh, make some comments there. And we look forward to uh, hearing from you guys. And as always, it's been a lot of fun, y'all. Bye.